postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Story Church podcast. We are actually now on the very last episode of our latest pod in our series, The Art of Missional Living. This is it, guys. This is the last episode. Um, and I really, really hope that you guys enjoy it and that it's a good wrap-up to this series. Uh, if anybody has any questions or you want to explore this topic a little bit more, obviously six sermons isn't, you know, the end-all be-all of this conversation. So always feel free to contact me. I'm always happy to answer questions uh, and explore and deepen the the content that you've been hearing uh, with, with more insights, more information, more experiences and, and stories that can basically just empower, you know, empower you, empower myself, empower everyone who's listening um, to continue on this journey of being missionaries for God's kingdom in our urban spaces, especially in the post-church um, society that we now inhabit in the West. Uh, before I flip over to that new episode, I do want to spend um, just a few moments saying a really big thank you to all the Patreons who are supporting the Story Church project. It is a, an absolute overwhelming, massive blessing. Thank you guys for just uh, being engaged, being connected, and uh, yeah, just putting yourself out there and supporting this project. I really, really, really do appreciate it because it really does help. Um, it really helps. It's There's no way for a project like this to continue to advance and grow without your support. So thank you guys so much. And also for those of you guys who comment and who share the links on your social media spaces and share it with your friends and family, I really appreciate you guys as well. All of this really contributes to helping this project be something that's not just a little corner on the internet with a few people who are, are passionate about this new vision of Adventism, but it allows us to have a broader impact in our, in our church culture throughout the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, the places that are most heavily impacted by uh, the kind of post-church mission field that I focus on a lot. So thank you guys. Uh, there is going to be a slight break on the Padanar. Obviously, once I finish a Padanar series, I take a break. Um, so there is going to be a slight break. Next few weeks, you won't be seeing any new episodes until the new Padanar series comes out, and you'll get all the updates for that, um, either on MailChimp if, if you're subscribed to my email list or if you follow me on Facebook uh, you'll get the updates there as well. So keep your eyes open for when the new season's coming out. There's some exciting content coming out later on this year. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you guys are really going to enjoy um, some of the stuff that that is uh, in the works, so to speak. One final thing, and that is if you haven't had a chance yet to check out the Unknown God podcast, maybe during that break, it'll be a good opportunity. Uh, tune over to the Unknown God podcast. You can go to theunknowngod.com. And uh, this is the podcast that Joel Brown and I have been doing for the last, uh, I don't know, I think we started this year. I can't remember exactly when, but we've got two seasons up and a few interviews as well, including an interview with Lecrae and an interview with uh, Matthew McConaughey. I believe we have an interview coming up in August with, uh, with Jordan Peterson as well. Um, and other than that, we've got two seasons really just uh, exploring the narrative of scripture, the message of Jesus, but reframing it and, uh, and, and communicating it as best as we can, because we're not perfect either, but communicating it in a way that is going to make more sense to people who aren't churched. So check out the Unknown God podcast. It is uh, a podcast for people who don't like church, um, a podcast about God, <laughs> that is, uh, for people who don't like church. And that one hasn't really been designed for Christians or for Adventists. That one's been specifically designed to speak about Jesus and about his message, but primarily to an audience that doesn't have a background in church or Christianity. Uh, so yeah, definitely check it out. You might learn some really cool things on there, or um, you might hear some things that, uh, you know, inspire or or trigger uh, some creative thought in your own missional uh, adventure. Okay, guys, um, that is it as, as far as announcement goes. Anyways, uh, so I'm going ahead and uh, I'm going to flip over to the final uh, presentation in the art of missional living. This is part six, and I will catch you on the other side. I woke up this morning 
and remembered that my printer doesn't work, so I couldn't print my sermon, and then remembered that um, the tablet that I usually use is in a bag that I left at someone else's house. <laughs> so my sermon notes are on my tiny phone screen. Um, so I'll do my best. I'll do my best with, uh, with that, but we should, we should be okay. Um, so we've been exploring this series, The Art of Missional Living. This is the last sermon on that series, right? This is the final one. We're, we're, we're closing out the series here, and then I'm going to move into some other, other themes and other topics I want to explore with you guys. But we have been exploring the art of missional living and, and looking at, particularly looking at the story of Paul. The story of Paul in Acts chapter 17. When he arrives at the city of Athens, which was a pagan city that had no background whatsoever in the Bible, um, and he arrives at that city and he begins to share the gospel in the city. He's, the Bible says he's in the marketplace and he's preaching and he's going between the synagogue and the marketplace. And as he's in the marketplace sharing with the Athenians, and the marketplace in those times would most likely have been the place that you went to purchase accessories for your idols, right? The food and different things that you would give to your idols. It was a very idolatrous city. So Paul's there and he's sharing the gospel and he's proclaiming the gospel with people. And um, he catches the attention of the influencers in the city, the philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans. And so they invite him to come to one of their big meetings that they would have at this place called the Areopagus. And they wanted him to come and continue to share what he was talking about there because these guys had no life. All they did was sit around and talk about the latest idea that was floating around. I don't know how they made a living. I don't know who sponsored them to do this. Um, obviously, they had to eat somehow, so somehow they were getting paid. But that's all they did. They would sit and they would discuss whatever new idea was floating around. So they thought, you know, who is this babbler who's proclaiming these strange gods we've never heard? And bring him over, we'll hear him out. So Paul stands in the Areopagus and he preaches this sermon that has become sort of the golden example of mission, particularly with people who have, don't share our background. Cross-culture mission is what they call it. And that's what we have been exploring. And I've broken down Paul's sermon and his approach and the lessons that we can learn and apply as we seek to reach the Athens that we live in. And that's one of the main themes I've emphasized is, particularly in the West, we used to live in a Christianized world in the West, where most of our neighbors, we could assume they at least understood some basic idea of church and Christianity, God, Jesus, etc. Um, we now live in Athens, right? We, we haven't moved from location, but the location that we live in has morphed. Um, we live in Athens. We live in, a, we live in an area or in an age where the vast majority of people, our neighbors, um, either come from different religious backgrounds, so Buddhist or Hindu um, or New Age, or they identify with no religion. And that's the dominant theme in the West today. People identify as nuns, no religious affiliation whatsoever. So how do we reach them? And that's what we've been exploring. And like I said, I've covered a lot of ground there, and if you've missed it, check out the previous sermons. What I want to do today as we finish this this. This has been more like a seminar than sermons, um, but what I want to do today as we finish this series out is I want to share some practical things that you can actually do to connect with people, right? So we've looked at the overarching themes um, on reaching people. I want to share some practical themes, things that you can actually do, tangible things you can do to connect with people in your sphere of influence. And then I want to close out by going back to Athens because I want to talk about Paul's big mistake. Because Paul made a big mistake. And some of you are looking at me like, how dare you suggest the apostle made a mistake. Paul made a big mistake in Athens. Um, and there's a powerful lesson that we can learn there from Paul as well. So we're, we're going to explore that and we'll close out with that. Um, so let me say a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, Thank you for this beautiful Sabbath you've given us. It is a bit windy and cold out, uh, but at least the sun is out for a little while today, which is really nice. Nice to see the blue skies. And um, yeah, thank you that we've managed and, and been able to gather together despite uh, the different things that are happening right now with the restrictions and stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's really easy to get bogged down in all the difficulties and, and just, yeah, uh, painful things that we're going through right now. But we also want to remember that uh, we are here to worship you and that you are not merely the God of the difficult, you are the God of the impossible. 
We can trust in you. We can count on you. And we can live with enthusiasm because our hope is anchored not in the fragile things that this world has to offer, but in the eternal rock who's Jesus Christ. So thank you again that we've, we're here. We're, we're gathered together. Despite all the chaos in life, we can worship you. We can thank you for how good you are. As we explore the story of Paul in Athens, we revisit it one more time. I pray that you speak to our hearts and that you would empower us, Lord, to be not merely church members, but disciples in your kingdom who make other disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so just a, just a quick recap on what we have seen so far from Paul in Athens. Um, there we go. So the first lesson that we learned from Paul in Athens, I've been working backwards, but because today is the last one, I'm going to work forward. So the first lesson that we've learned from Paul is in order to reach a city, you have to leave the comfort of the building that you inhabit, the synagogue, the church building, um, and you have to go where people are. All right? the, the, the story calls it the marketplace. You have to go where people are. The second lesson that we saw is that Paul's provocation, and he was provoked by the idolatry in Athens, and I sincerely hope each and every one of you are provoked by the injustices of this world when you see it taking place. The, the, the worst thing that could happen to the followers of Jesus is if we become apathetic toward the craziness of our societies. We should not be apathetic, right? We should be provoked by that. But when we are provoked, we have an option, <laughs> We can use that provocation to go on an attack, or we can use that provocation as fuel for respectful missional engagement, and that's what Paul chose. He was provoked by the idolatry, and he could have written a book about how evil the Athenians and their idols were, but instead he used that fuel for respectful missional engagement. Powerful lesson there. Lesson number three, reaching our city is a partnership between us and God. We must work with him and like him. To reach others, that's a big one, right? Working like him. And we've talked about that a lot, so I won't go into more detail. Um, now, each of those lessons had three sub-points. So it's sort of nine lessons in total, nine sub-points out of those three. And I'm just summarizing it into five because some of them do overlap, right? So five sub-points that we can learn from those three overarching themes that we find from Paul in Athens. The first one is don't burn bridges by focusing on differences with people. Build bridges by focusing on common ground, right? That's the very first one. Um, this is the very best way to be a terrible missionary and completely fail at leading people to Jesus is focus on the areas that you disagree <laughs> and hammer those until the person decides not to speak to you ever again. Um, don't burn bridges, build bridges. And it's amazing how many bridges we can actually build with people. And the reason why, the reason why, and this is especially something we can especially appreciate as Adventists, is because God is involved in human time and history. That's what the sanctuary theme of Scripture is all about, that God is involved in human time and human history. He's present. He's active. He's working. And, um, and so what this means is when I meet a Hindu or when I meet a Buddhist, they may come from, a, from a, a, a faith tradition that I consider to be false, but at the same time, I know God's been working among those people. And that if I look close enough, I will find, and I think here's the, here's the, 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 the sub-point, um, evidence of God's presence within that culture, and I can focus on that and build bridges through that. All right, the second one was don't approach people from a top-down posture. Go side-by-side side instead. And this is a really hard one, um, especially when we have been in church for a while. We can kind of fall for the, the notion that we know it all. And when we are approaching people to teach or to share the faith, we kind of approach it from I'm up here and you're down here and I've got all the answers. And you may not say that, but if you come with that energy, people usually, it's too threatening, and, and they walk off. So what I often say to people is, look, I know you're searching for truth. I can see it. I'm searching for truth as well. Let's search together. That's a side-by-side -side approach. And that allows them to share their story, and it allows me to share my story. And because I believe the Holy Spirit is active in this role, it's not just me. I believe the Holy Spirit is active, and he's convicting, and he's opening, and he's drawing. I know the story of Jesus is going to absolutely take root in that person's heart, and we'll be able to explore that in a really powerful way. Um, I'm, I'm currently working with um, two, two young people, well, quite a few, but I just want to mention two. Um, one of them is a former drug addict, 
And the other one is a young woman who uh, uh, is um, trans. So she she's, uh, doesn't identify as a woman. And we've been going on this journey now for two years. I've been using this approach of going side by side and journeying with them, which means I'm, I'm listen, I listen to them a lot and then I, I also share a lot. And it's amazing what I've been able to observe in their lives as, even though it's a long process, right? This isn't like a... Um, a conveyor belt that you, you put people in this little conveyor belt and six months later you got them ready for baptism. You got to get rid of that. That's, that's <laughs> disingenuous. Sometimes it can take years and I've been working with these guys for, for years and when you start to see the aha moment of the love of God come alive, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it and when you see that, wow, like that aha moment, that is no lie, the most addictive experience. <laughs> you just, you just want to go out and tell somebody else. Because when you see that light bulb come on and they realize, like, wow. Like, they have that moment where they see Jesus for the first time. And you're sitting there and you witness this. The amazing thing is it makes Jesus come alive even more for you. Right? And, and so that's why I see this as we're growing together. Because when I share Jesus with someone else... I'm not sharing it from the perspective of I've arrived and I got it all figured out, here you go. But when I share it with you and I see it come alive in your life, it becomes more alive in mine and we grow together. Um, all right, so see, or the third point, become a student of your city and neighbor so you can share the gospel in ways that make sense to them. We talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to go into more detail. Contextualization, not syncretism where you are basically, oh, you know what, should I explain that again? No, go back to the previous sermons because that's going to take too much time. Um, but contextualization, um, learning how people think, learning how people communicate, using language that makes sense to them, illustrations that make sense to them so you can communicate the gospel without their eyes glazing over and them being completely confused by what you're saying. Um, the third, fourth point, remember people don't care how much they know until you, they know how much you care. This is huge, massive. And the last point to remember, mission is not an extra activity that you tack onto an already busy schedule. So it's not a program, it's not an event. Mission is a way of being that redefines your schedule. And so what this means is when we embrace the call of Jesus to live missionally, it's, it does, that doesn't mean, hey, I've embraced the call of Jesus to live missionally, so every Sunday afternoon I'm going to do a mission project. No, that means Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every moment of every day is redefined by the call to make disciples. Does that mean you're constantly having Bible studies? Of course not. But everything that you do is done with the aim of lifting Jesus up and announcing his coming kingdom. In diverse ways, and we do that in different ways, right? Some of us can, can, can have really elaborate Bible studies. Others of us make meals for people. But the point is you find the ways in which God has wired you to live missionally in every facet of your life. It redefines your whole schedule. We've made the mistake of a church as a church of communicating that mission is a program or an activity that only certain people with certain gifts and certain expertise can do. And it, and, and it makes everyone feel like, well, I suppose there's nothing for me to do. And that's not what mission is in the Bible. But I talked about that quite a bit last time, so I'll say no more. Um, missional living isn't about adding another what to your schedule. It's about transforming the why of your schedule from me and mine to Christ and his kingdom rule. All right. So here's a few simple strategies for sharing your faith. Because I told you guys I wanted to, to share some practical things, right? These are all great points to keep in mind. But when it comes down to it, it's tangible. You're navigating life with people. You're journeying with people. You're connecting with people. And so I just want to share a few here. And believe you me, learning how to connect with others and how to share your faith with others is a lifelong learning experience. All right? I've been doing missional living for, for years, and I'm still learning. If, if, if I find a book by a missionary that I haven't read before, guess what I'm doing? I'm reading it. <laughs> I'm always learning. I'm looking through Jesus' life. How was Jesus connecting with people? Reading through Desire of Ages, you know, it expands on some of that really beautifully. Like, how was Jesus doing this? Always seeking to learn how to connect with people. There is no formula. There is no silver bullet. You're just constantly learning and growing in that space. So here's a few, and then I want to talk about Paul's big mistake. All right, so... Well, that should not be there, actually. It says Paul's three steps. That's the wrong heading. Forget that. Um, here's a few things to keep in mind. When it comes to sharing your faith with people, now, I work primarily with secular people. That's my passion, 
right? So I do connect, I do have a few friends who are Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu, but my primary thing is connecting with people who are just completely secular, no background in Christianity whatsoever, no religion, completely apathistic, you know, apathetic toward things about God. You, you get me in a friendship with one of them, and I'm just like, I'm on cloud nine. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, and so here, so I'm speaking from that perspective a little bit, but I think there's crossover no matter who you're sharing the gospel with. So the first thing that I've learned is when you're engaging, when you're in a relationship with people, you can view the, the, the journey towards sharing Jesus as a very simple process. There's simple conversation, right? Simple conversation that you start out with. Getting to know someone, speaking simply about simple things like, you know, their life and the things that they're into and having fun. I'm, I'm currently um, just recently started discipling a, a new guy that I just met who is um, from here from Perth, and he has no idea he's being discipled yet, but he's being discipled, all right? Um, because discipleship doesn't begin with throwing information, right? Let me tell you what the Bible says about X, Y, Z. That's not how discipleship begins with relationship, with establishing trust with one another. And so we're at the simple phase where all of our conversation is very simple. We're getting to know each other, and that's fine. Now, what happens, the big mistake that a lot of people make is they try and jump from simple to spiritual and get right away into talking about things about God. At least in a secular sphere, that doesn't work very well, all right? It might work if you're dealing with people who are already religious, but it doesn't really work well in a secular sphere. So what I have found is you have to go from simple to meaningful, right? And from meaningful, I can then, at, later down the track, begin to speak about the spiritual thing. Now, what I mean by meaningful and, and by spiritual, what I mean is if this guy that I'm discipling right now isn't willing to tell me or share with me um, about the suffering that he's going through with the breakdown in his marriage, if he's not willing to open up about that, I'm not going to have any success having a spiritual conversation with him, right? So the simple goal is, look, we start simple, and then I want to nurture that relationship so that the person has enough trust that they're willing to open up and share the meaningful. And when they're willing to open up and share the meaningful, it's way easier to transition into the spiritual because they're sharing meaningful things with you. They're talking about their existence, the meaning in life, their struggles, their depression, their anxiety, the breakdown of their family, the sister who's addicted, the brother who's, you know, got cancer. And it's, it's very simple from that point then, with that trust established, to be able to move into a spiritual conversation. And that conversation doesn't have to be heavy. It could be something as simple as, hey, look, I'm, I'm really sorry that you're going through that. And um, I don't know about you. I'm a person of faith, and I would love to pray for you. That's it. Right? It doesn't require a PhD in theology, right? Um, and most of the time, even people who aren't religious appreciate that, you know? Um, so simple to meaningful to spiritual. Now, as you're navigating that, how do you actually move through that, right? How do you, how do you build that trust? How do you move from simple to meaningful? So, for example, oh, well, let me turn this back on. Here, here's how I do it, all right? So what I aim to do is I aim to follow this acronym. It's, the acronym is BELLS, okay? Bless, eat, listen, learn, share. The first one is bless. How do you move and build trust with someone so that you can get to spiritual conversations? BELLS is how I do it. Now, here's the thing, you guys. This stuff's so simple. Like, it's so simple. There is no rocket science here whatsoever. There is nothing magical. There is, there is no special skill needed. Uh, you could do this and be an introvert, all right? Like, it's so simple. The, the, the problem that we have in the church is we've made mission complicated. And so we think in order to do mission, you got to have all these special skills and these special resources and this great knowledge. You don't. It is so simple, you guys. It's so simple that when I share this with people, they're disappointed at how simple it is. They're like, I was expecting something more academic. It's not. It's simple. Bless. So what I mean by bless? Exactly what it means. You look for ways in which you can be a blessing in that person's life. A very simple example, right? I get together with my friend. We work out together every week. One day, I show up. And to, 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 the, to our training session, I show up with a Powerade that I bought him at the shop. That's a blessing. 
See how simple that is. Like, there's nothing like, wow. No, there is no wow. It's so simple. And that's the point, right? I show up with a drink. Hey, I got you a drink at the shop. Those little tiny things build trust. It's like any relationship. You can have, and you can talk about this, you know, ask any married couple. You, you, you can have a, 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 a partner who declares their undying love for you in amazing panoramic color. But the real test is whether they're willing to get up and grab you a glass of water when you're thirsty. Or when you go to bed at night and, you know, they, they've brought a glass of water and it's there waiting for you. That tiny little act is so powerful. It's the same with our missional relationships. It's these tiny, nearly imperceptible acts. I would even call them boring acts that are deeply meaningful. Bless people. Look for ways to bless people. It could be a compliment, right? It, it could be bringing a meal because they're sick. Ah, look, man, you know, I, I heard you were sick. Yeah, I'll bring you something to eat. Don't worry about cooking, you know? And don't ask for permission. <laughs> Just do it. Um, <laughs> so bless. Um, the second one is eat. It's seek to open your table to people. Here's the amazing thing. In the modern church, the church that you and I inhabit today, the thing around which everything we do revolves is this piece of wood right here, the lectern. In the modern church, everything revolves around the lectern. Everything we do revolves around the lectern, right? When you read the New Testament, everything they did revolved around the table. The table was the center because the table's relationship, the table is intimacy. The table is celebration. The table is openness, right? The table was not just something that they did as an add-on. The table was the center of the New Testament church experience. When you open your table, this is why Jesus was always, you know, the Pharisees would always attack him. Like, why are you eating with sinners? Because the very act of eating is a spiritual act. It's, it's, it, there's intimacy that you're, you're opening yourself up with people. And so what I aim to do once again, going back to, 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 to my, I'm going back to my new friend as an example because this is a new discipleship journey, is in time, I will find and look for ways to actually sit down and eat meals with him. Not all the time, you're not doing it all the time, but little by little, right? Hey, let's go out and catch, you know, grab a bite to eat or grab a drink or something. And you just go out and you eat. You talk about life. These little things build trust. Um, listen, this is, this was so simple, but we're terrible at it. Listen, right? Listening to people. When you ask them to talk about their life, when you ask them to share how they see the world or what they think about X, Y, Z, don't listen with the intent of responding. Listen with the intent of appreciating. There's a huge difference between the two, right? When you listen with the intent of responding, you're not listening. Because while the other person is doing this, you're formulating your response in your head. So you're not actually listening. But when you listen with the intent to appreciate, you can really hear their story. You can really hear where they're coming from. Learn. Be open to learning. That's a big one. Um, and again, super, super simple. When someone gets the sense that you see yourself as a closed case that nothing can impact or enter into, that kills trust. Because it's like, okay, so the only person whose voice here really matters is yours because every time I share... You're not open to what I have to say or what I have to, what I have to share. Um, so that's, that's a big one. And, and finally, share. Like, as you build this trust, right, and this is how I do it. I, I use the BELLS acronym. I learned it from a missionary. It's very simple. Um, blessing people, eating with people, listening to people, learning from people. All of that in time then opens up the possibility that I can share. You've told me your story. Let me tell you mine, right? The center of my world is Jesus, and this is why. And I can tell them my story, right? I'm not going to do it now because then you won't be here too long. But, you know, and it's actually really good, a really good tip for, for, for you guys to learn. Um, sit down and map out how to share your story, your encounter with Jesus, but map it out in a way that you can share it within two minutes, Okay, map it out so you can share it within two minutes. Now, that's not because you're trying to present some disingenuous, cheesy, black and white story. It's so that you can share it very simply, very quickly, and then allow the person to lead through questions. Because if you go into a half hour, you know, <laughs> half an hour testimony time, it, it, it usually is too, it's too much. It's overwhelming. So if you can share your testimony in two minutes and then allow the person to lead through questions, it's more interactive and it's more powerful.
Um, now, as I'm doing this, as I'm doing this, because I, the share is that very last one, I don't go to share unless I've spent a, a specific amount of time in prayer. So say I'm with my friend, we're in the simple phase, and I'm doing bells because I want to get to meaningful and ultimately to spiritual. Once I get to that phase where I'm like, okay, I need, I need to get into spiritual, this, that's, that's the next stage in our conversation, I want to get into spiritual, what I need to do now is I need to actually set aside some time, and I'll say, all right, for the next 20 days, I'm going to pray every day for the Holy Spirit to open up this person's heart to the this, to this spiritual conversation. Now, why am I saying that? And in fact, I had someone ask me recently, um, don't you feel disingenuous when you engage people this way? Because there's kind of like this project in your mind, like there's this end goal that you're trying to get to. And and doesn't that feel a bit disingenuous? And my response was, it would be if the only two people in the relationship were me and the other person. But there's a third party whose name is Satan. Satan who has a vested interest in making sure that this person never encounters Christ. And that means that I, as a follower of Jesus, it's not just me and this person have a relationship and that's the end of it. No, there is a third party deeply involved making sure I don't want this person to ever know Christ. And so as a follower of Jesus, my responsibility is to be intentional in opening up space for people to have conversations and encounter Jesus. And so that's what I do when I'm getting ready to move into the spiritual as I spend a season in prayer every day. It, you choose the time. It could be 15 days. It could be 20 days. Every day, pray, 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 pray. Pray for the Holy Spirit to peel back or, or, or to block off that influence of the enemy so that this person's heart can open up to the gospel. And that then finally, once, once, I've, once I've gone through that prayer season, I'm then open to, to that sharing experience. But I can't get to share in the spiritual if, I, if I'm not at the meaningful, right? So this is often how I approach it. Now, is there a lot more to it than that? Are there, is, is, it, is it true that you have to approach it differently with different people, that there is no silver bullet? Absolutely. It's, there's, there's no perfect formula that works perfectly in every single case. Um, and so it's, I've, I've always have to learn more, and I always have to explore more. And as I mentioned in the last sermon, and there's going to be some promotional material coming out soon, so keep your eyes out for that. Um, even though this is the last sermon of this series, I'm going to do a Friday night Zoom group for, I think it's five or six sessions, I can't remember exactly, we talked about a set, where I'm going to go into more detail um, and more specific scenarios. So if any of you are like, hey, I would love to develop these missionary skills a bit more and have more exposure to different scenarios and different ways of reaching people um, and, you know, answer questions like, what do I do when they ask a really hard Bible question, et cetera, et cetera. Um, questions that usually stop us from engaging, essentially. That's what that, those Zoom sessions are going to be. So keep your eyes open because there'll be some stuff coming out on WhatsApp and email um, and, and you, can, you can learn more about when we're starting that. Finally, okay, now this is my last thing that I'll share, and then I'll move on to Paul's big mistake. Um, when, if, if, if this journey moves in a really powerful way, and the person is open to learning more about God, this is where I find most people, like, the reason why they won't even start the journey is because they're scared of the Bible study. They're like, I don't even want to go there because this person wants Bible studies. I don't know what to do. You know, like, what am I going to do? I can't give Bible studies. And I don't know how many times I've heard that. Um, and it's understandable. It's understandable because the way that we tend to do Bible studies requires a specific gifting and a specific knowledge. And most people don't feel like they lack one or both of those. They don't have the skills necessary to confidently give Bible studies, or they don't have the knowledge to teach these doctrines, and so they just say, look, I can't do it. And if you can't do the Bible study, it kind of kills your motivation to do any of the others, right? So what I often share with people is there's two ways of doing Bible study. There's the doctrinal study, which is the, what we're all familiar with. Doctrinal studies require a specific gifting, and they require a, a, um, a certain level of knowledge, and that's true. So don't do doctrinal studies, because there's a whole other way of doing Bible study. In fact, virtually every missionary I've ever met 
goes on and on about making sure you do these. It is called Discovery Bible Study. Now, the difference between the two is that in Discovery Bible Study, you're not teaching. In doctrinal study, you are. So it requires certain giftings, certain skills. In Discovery Bible Study, you're not teaching. So what is Discovery Bible Study? Discovery Bible Study say, all right, look, you want to learn more about Jesus? Let's read the book of, there's a book in the Bible that talks about Jesus, the life of Jesus. Let's read it together. We'll read one story at a time. All right, let's go to the book of John. And I recommend the book of John because the book of John goes through every single belief the church has. Every single, like all, all 28, well, okay, there's one that's missing, the millennium. The rest of them are there, right? Every single one of them. And I brought these little bookmarks so you guys can have a look at, and there's a whole bunch of them in the table out back. Please grab one on the way out because it explains what Discovery Bible Study, how it works, and it's all there. That's how simple it is. You sit down with someone, you read a story in the Bible, and it's just five questions. So as we read the story, what was new for you? And then the person talks. And then the next question, is there anything in the story that surprised you? And then the person talks. And the next question, what is there in the story you don't understand? And the person talks some more. You barely do anything. You don't need any level of doctrinal knowledge. And you don't need any particular skills. It's so easy because the purpose of Discovery Bible Study is you're allowing the Word and the Holy Spirit to lead that person in discovering who Jesus is. Now, obviously, they're going to have questions. Everybody will, right? So, for example, question number three, what don't you understand? Um, well, I don't understand this. You are under no obligation to have a perfect answer. Okay, you don't understand that? You know what? Let me be honest with you, man. I don't, I'm not sure I fully understand that either. How about... We look into it, and then the next time we get together, I can share with you what I learned about that. And then that gives you the motivation to learn your Bible more, right? Because for some reason, when you're sharing with someone, you find the time to learn more about the Bible. But when you're not sharing with someone, you've always got something else to do. I don't understand how it works, but that's just how it works, right? Discovery Bible study, discovery Bible reading. You're sitting down with someone. You're reading the stories of Jesus. You're asking very open-ended, simple questions. It's all here. You can read about it. Um, bookmarks are there. And the amazing thing, the reason why I love Discovery Bible reading is because say, say I, you know, I, I do a Discovery Bible reading with this, this guy that I started discipling a few weeks ago. From the very first Discovery Bible reading, he can go and do it with someone else. Whereas with doctrinal study, it'll take me months to prepare him to actually do those with people, right? Whereas with the Discovery Bible reading, from the very first time he does it, he can actually go and reproduce it. He can go and do it with his friends, it's so easy to do. It's so simple. This is why missionaries love it. So don't be afraid of the whole Bible thing. And of course, at some point, they're going to need doctrinal Bible studies. And, you know, at that point, you can tap into people in your community who are good at that if you're really scared of, of getting into that. But you don't have to let that be a block because you can, again, even through Discovery Bible Study, you can cover every doctrine just by reading the book of John, except the millennium. So, um, and, you know, if that's the case, just say, Pastor Marcus, preach a sermon on the millennium, and we have it covered. Okay. Did I turn this off again? Yes, I did. All right. So those are some simple things. And always remember, John 16, 12, there is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. You don't have to overload people with a bunch of information. I was at a Bible study one time years ago. Um, this, it was with this Irish guy. Very secular because... You know, he grew up in Ireland, the Protestant Catholic wars. He wanted nothing to do with religion. He was like, eh, not, not interested. Um, but he had gotten older, and he was unwell. He was sick, and so he was open. He was, he was seeking. He was searching. And so I, this lady at my church had connected with him, and they started Bible studies. She said, Marcus, come along. So I came along. We're doing Bible studies. We had five Bible studies together. We were going great. It was going really well. And then in one study, I don't remember all the details, but in one study, the guy mentioned going to heaven when you die. But that wasn't the topic of the Bible study that night. There was a whole other topic. It was a totally different topic. But he mentioned going to heaven when you die. And the lady who was leading the Bible study took it upon herself to correct him right then and there. He never invited us back. That was the last Bible study. Now, what was it that happened? Two things happened. Number one, that wasn't the topic of the night. 
So he had already been, he was already chewing on, on new things he hadn't learned before. And number two, because that wasn't the topic of the night, the lady who, who was leading the Bible study wasn't even prepared to fully take him through the journey of seeing how Scripture teaches the state of the dead. So as she was answering questions, she was fumbling, and he was asking more questions, and it just, she, she didn't seem like she knew what he was talking about. And at one point, he sort of sat back, and he said, oh, I, I, I respect, I respect what, I see what you're saying, and, and, and I respect it. And then he didn't say anything else. We went on with the rest of the Bible study, and we were never invited back, right? I do this all the time when I'm, done, when I'm journeying with people, particularly secular people, people who have no religious background. They have a lot of crazy ideas. They have a lot of weird things that they believe. They mention it all the time. I've learned to bite my tongue because there's a lot of things I want to tell you. It's too soon. We'll go slow. If you can learn this one thing, this one thing today, that's enough. If we can experience this one thing today, that's enough. In time, you'll experience a bit more, and you'll experience a bit more, and you'll experience a bit more. And the reason why I'm willing to be that gracious with people that I'm studying the Bible with is because that's how God has led me, right? There are things in my life that I know now that if God had shared me with me when I was 20, I would have freaked out. And there are things that I'll know when I'm 50 that if he told me now, I'd probably go into a coma, Right? Like, it's a journey. It's slow. You don't always overcome the impulse of just slamming people with too much information at once, um, particularly when they say things you don't agree with. It's okay. You, do, you, you don't have to always correct people. Okay. Um, now, let's go to Paul's big mistake, and then I'll let you guys go home. All right? Paul's big mistake. If you want to learn more, I know there's some practical tips. If you want to learn more and you want to get better at um, the whole missional engagement, again, Zoom thing coming up. Um, so watch watch. Watch that space. Paul's big mistake. I want you to go to the book of uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Um, and I want to close with this because this is, I love this lesson. This lesson is just absolutely amazing and powerful and beautiful. Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 32 and 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 32 and 34. When you're there, say I'm there. All right. That, that was okay. There's only a few of us, so I'll go with that. No. <laughs> Here's what it says. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, when we read this text, at first reading, it seems that Paul was very successful in Athens. In fact, in previous sermons, if you remember, I've talked about how the gospel took root in this pagan city because of the work that Paul did. But what have I suggested as we finish this series up today? What have I suggested to you that Paul wasn't as successful as he could have been? I'm just going to let that sit in the air. <laughs> I'm glad you guys don't have easy access to tomatoes right now. What have I suggested that it wasn't as successful as it could have been? That Paul made a mistake that resulted in less success than he could have had. You might think I'm crazy, even to suggest that the apostle would, would, would make such a mistake. But I'm not the only one who feels this way. Here's, here's a statement from, uh, God, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the website, gotquestions.org. It's, it's a website where you ask questions about the Bible, and they'll reply with an answer. Kind of like the Amazing Facts one, you know, like the... You send in a Bible question to write an answer. So, from, from someone asked a question about um, Paul's work in Athens, and, and here's, here's the, their response on, on the website. It says, it seems that the church of Athens never flourished, as did many of the churches Paul planted. He wrote epistles to Corinth and Thessalonica and other cities with churches, but he never wrote an epistle to the Athenians. Also, Paul only visited Athens once on his second missionary journey and never again, as far as we know. And very few Athenians believed. Now, my question is why? Why didn't Paul have greater 
success. Why did the church in Athens never really flourish? That's what we find as we try and explore what happened in Athens after Paul left. A few people believed, but the church never flourished. What happened? What went wrong? I want you to turn with me to, it's still in Acts 17, just come back to verse 22. I'm going to read his sermon. I'm going to read his sermon to you, and we're going to point out where Paul went wrong and what we can learn from it. And by the way, Paul himself later admits this, so I didn't make this up. Here we go. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Brilliant contextualization. Ah, so good. (laughs) I'm I'm a bit of a nerd. Sorry, guys. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Pause and think about Paul's sermon so far. He's done an introduction, a contextualized introduction. I'm here to talk to you about the unknown God. And then he begins his content, and he begins with, essentially, with the doctrine of creation, the God who made the world and everything in it, and the doctrine of God. He's not served by human hands as though he needed everything. He provides for everything else, right? So he begins with the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of God. And then he moves on. From one man, he made all the nations. So now he goes into humanity. Adam, the one man from whom he made all the nations, the doctrine of humanity, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So he's gone into the doctrine of humanity, and now he's exploring how God has been involved in history. This is the sanctuary, right? He's been involved in history, marking and setting things up so that people would search for him and find him. So far... It's really good. And then he quotes a pagan poet, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he brings his point home. He doesn't quote the Bible, he quotes a poet, because people didn't know what the Bible was, so he quotes this poet. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, notice what Paul has done here. It's brilliant. He's met the Athenians where they are. He's introducing them to the unknown God, the God who created everything. And he goes into the doctrine of creation. He goes into the doctrine of God, and he goes into the doctrine of humanity, and he goes into the doctrine of God reaching out and connecting and and, and orchestrating history so that people would be drawn to him. And then he brings that point home by quoting one of their own poets. We are his offspring. And he says... For this reason, logically, if you just follow the logic, Athenians, clearly, this God can't be depicted in idols. He's too big. He's too grand. He's too majestic to be depicted in idols. Now, what was Athens known for? Idolatry. So Paul has just leveled a devastating critique of idolatry. And he's done it in a very gentle and very intelligent way. He's laid the foundation and he's built this theme and he's built the logic and he's finally got them here, a divine being. You can't picture him like gold or silver or any design or image made by human skill. It's not possible. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Makes sense. In the past, Paul says... God overlooks such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, follow with me here. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Okay. Paul has his creation of God and humanity. It's in the sermon. Uh, Sorry, the doctrine of God and creation is in the sermon. The doctrine of humanity is in the sermon. He mentions the resurrection. That's in the sermon. He mentions judgment. That's in the sermon. Something's missing. Something's missing. What's missing? And it's weird because it's Paul. And it's like, how is this not in your sermon, Paul? Of all people. (laughs) What's missing in Paul's sermon? It doesn't mention it once. 
Okay? What'd you say? Mentions, yeah, Lamb of God. He mentions Jesus. He was resurrected, man, that God resurrected from the dead. So I want to follow that Lamb of God a little bit more. What, what about the Lamb of God? That is, like, it's super central to just about everything Paul ever wrote. Forgiveness of sin because of? Yeah, but because forgiveness of sins through repentance, but what is the thing that makes that possible? Huh? Jesus' death. The cross. It's like, what happened? <laughs> Where's the cross, Paul? What happened to the cross? It's weird. Now, maybe he planned on saying it later. Maybe he planned on doubling back and going into the cross. But what happens, according to the story we read in Acts, is as soon as he mentions resurrection, a whole bunch of the Athenian philosophers sneered at him. They wrote him off right there. And there was a few who followed, but for the most part, that was it. Now, let me, let me make something very straight. I still believe that Paul was successful. His contextualization was brilliant. And you have to admit, you're never going to reach everyone, all right? Let's make that very clear. You could be the absolute best missionary on earth. You'll never reach everyone. Jesus himself couldn't keep Judas, right? Like, it's just, that's just the way it is. People make their own choices. But something is off because in, his, in this amazing sermon that he preaches, he skips the cross. And I wonder... Had Paul focused on the cross, would he have had a greater impact? See, he's trying to steer the Athenians away from idolatry. That's cool. But he relies a little bit too much on logic to do that. Somehow, and I don't know why or how, Paul appears to have forgotten that people don't change because they have new information. People change because they encountered the cross. Now, in the book Ministry of Healing, there's a very interesting statement. Ellen White says, the experience of the Apostle Paul in meeting the philosophers of Athens has a lesson for us. In presenting the gospel before the court of Areopagus, Paul met logic with logic, science with science, philosophy with philosophy. The wises of his hearers were astonished and silenced. His words could not be controverted, but the effort bore little fruit. Few were led to the gospel. And then in just a, that's in Ministry of Healing, page 115, just a sentence later, she says, Paul learned a lesson. And from that moment on, Paul recognized his mistake, and so he switched his method. At a future missionary journey into another pagan Greek city of Corinth filled with Gentiles, Paul took a different approach. He still contextualized. He still did all those things that make sense to do. But notice, he, he himself wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Wow. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean we take the art of missional living part one through five and toss it out? No, that's not what it means. Paul continued to contextualize, and Ellen White herself, as I showed you, had many uh, statements where she instructed us on the need to adapt and to use different methods and to, and to present things in ways that make sense to people who have diverse backgrounds and beliefs. That's common sense. So then what does this mean, and what do we learn from it? It means this. Paul skipped the cross and went straight to judgment. But only one thing can truly change the human heart, and it's not logic, and it's not airtight arguments, and it's not even the doctrine of the judgment. It's the cross. I had a lady one time who said to me, I was going to be doing a wedding, and 
her secular family was going to be there. People who want nothing to do with church. She said, I'm glad you're doing the sermon at the wedding, Pastor Marcus. I know you're going to do really well. So I did the sermon at the wedding. And she specifically said to me, you know, they're all secular. They don't want anything to do with church. They've been to church events before. They went to a funeral one time where the pastor just went on and on about how dumb atheists are. And they're all atheists. So it did not go over very well. So she said, you know, just be, be careful. I'm like, oh, I, I, don't worry. This is, this is my bread and butter. I love this. So I did the sermon. I preached the sermon on the wedding feast at Cana. Um, focusing on the lessons that you can learn about marriage from that story. And I specifically said it in a way that would be meaningful to these secular atheist people that were in the audience. Anyways, la same lady comes up to me afterwards. She's upset. Like, why are you upset? Oh, because you didn't take the opportunity in the sermon to tell them how evil alcohol is. Because, you know, Jesus threw water into wine. They know. They know alcohol is bad for your brain and your body. You think that me standing there and taking a stab at their favorite pastime is going to bring them to Jesus? Not a chance. You don't lead people to God by condemning, exposing, or attacking. In fact, here it says, yeah, condemning, exposing, or attacking someone's sins will never result in repentance. Logic and reason won't either. The sinner encounters true rebirth only at the cross. Therein lies the power of God. It is at the cross alone that true liberation takes place. Paul's only mention of Jesus is that God raised him from the dead. And he learned his lesson. Study the culture, people of Jundalup. Study your city. Contextualize. Use good logic. But never forget, only the cross can melt a heart of stone. Paul tried to get idolaters to abandon idolatry using good logical arguments, and it didn't work, and it never will. So here's my takeaway. Learn the art of missional living. As I said, study your audience, speak their language, embody their stories. But in all this, never forget, the gospel takes root only when the cross is proclaimed. And Paul himself later wrote that it is the cross, the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. You want to see the gospel take root in your friends' lives? You want to see the gospel take root in your family's lives? It doesn't happen if you're just poking at all the things that they're doing wrong. And all the lifestyle choices that they're making that you don't agree with. No, it happens when you lead them to the cross. So if you want to be a good missionary as we close our series out, here's the challenge. Make the cross your study. Make the cross your conversation. Make the cross your contemplation. You know, Ellen White says we should contemplate the life of Jesus, especially the closing scenes every day. Some of us know so much about so many things. You know, I meet people at church that can tell me everything there is to know about Bill Gates and the Great Reset. And look, if you study that stuff and you find it interesting, you know, I'm don't have any condemnation toward that, but we know so much about all these things that enrapture us, and we barely know anything about the cross, which is the one thing that can truly change a person's life. Make the cross your contemplation. If you're spending time studying all other kinds of stuff, pause, switch it up, change direction, make the cross your contemplation. Make the cross your invitation. Make the cross your everything. And I don't mean the cross merely as a historical event with bullet points of data. I mean actually experiencing God, experiencing His love for you, experiencing what He actually did on your behalf, on my behalf, on our behalf, on that cross. Because when that's the center of you, it will be the center of what you say.
And when that's the center of what you say, people will experience transformation. How would you like an Adventist Bible study set designed for millennials, postmoderns, and unchurched seekers? The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture is a one-of-a-kind Bible study set that I've designed to communicate the story of redemption to unchurched generations. With 30 chapters in total, you'll get to discover the gospel, prophecy, and even end-time events in a fresh, meaningful, and relevant way. To learn more about this and get your own copy, head over to thestorychurchproject.com.